Hello and welcome to the World Nuclear News Podcast. I'm Alex Hunt. In this month's edition, we have news from Sweden on plans for nuclear expansion. Less positive developments surrounding the carbon-free power plant project across the Atlantic. And we consider how the conversation over nuclear has changed over the past 14 years or so. And should nuclear power plants get a bit of stylish design treatment? We hear the architect, Eric van Egerat. If you want to be taken serious by the public, you have to take the public serious. That means that you cannot just do your technical stuff and say it's fine because now it's safe and it works. You have to make sure it looks good and it makes people feel good. But we start the news roundup with World Nuclear News' Warwick Pipe, who's been covering what the government promises to be a massive expansion of nuclear energy in Sweden. Hi Alex. Yes, we have had some very good news from Sweden this month. Following the Three Mile Island accident in the USA, a referendum took place in 1980 to decide the future of nuclear energy in Sweden. The outcome of that referendum was for nuclear energy to be phased out by 2010. However, in 2010, the Swedish parliament passed legislation allowing existing reactors to be replaced with new ones on existing sites. In mid-2016, the government said it envisioned all operating reactors to be shut down by 2050. However, there has since been a change in attitude to nuclear power in Sweden. In October last year, the country's incoming centre-right coalition government adopted a positive stance towards nuclear energy. In October this year, a bill to amend Sweden's legislation on nuclear power was introduced by the government in Parliament. It aims to remove the current law limiting the number of reactors in operation to 10, as well as allowing reactors to be built on new sites rather than just existing ones. These changes to the law are proposed to enter into force on the 1st of January 2024. The government has now announced a roadmap that envisages a massive expansion of nuclear energy. It sees nuclear generating capacity of at least 2,500 megawatts to be brought online by 2035 at the latest, with up to 10 new large-scale reactors coming online by 2045. The government noted that the exact amount and type of reactors needed depends on several things, including the need and rate of expansion in the electricity system, technological development, and where in the country new consumption and production are located. There's also been some very positive developments in neighbouring Norway, which has previously operated research reactors, but not nuclear power plants. Norse Sharnikraft, which aims to build, own and operate small modular reactor power plants in Norway, in collaboration with Power Intensive Industry, entered into an agreement of intent earlier this year on the investigation of nuclear power with several municipalities. In early November, it submitted a proposal to Norway's Ministry of Oil and Energy for an assessment into the construction of a power plant based on multiple SMRs in the municipalities of Aura and Hein. The company said it marked the first formal step towards the possible construction of the country's first nuclear power plant. About a week later, it was announced that Norsk Sharnikraft, Ostfelt Energy and the municipality of Halden will investigate the construction of a nuclear power plant based on small SMRs at Halden, where a research reactor once operated. Interestingly, 
the initiative to investigate the deployment of SMRs at Howden came from the municipality itself, as there are concerns about future energy supplies in the area. That all sounds like good news. Claire Maiden reports now on difficult times for a high-profile small modular reactor project in the US. So the Carbon Free Power Project, or CFPP, had aimed to build a plant deploying six 77-megawatt nuclear power modules provided by New Scale Power at a site near Idaho Falls. The preferred site is on land that's part of the Idaho National Laboratory and it was identified as long ago as 2016 as a spot for the CFPP plant. Now, CFPP is a company set up by Utah Associated Municipal Power Systems, or UAMPS, and that's a political subdivision of the state of Utah. It provides energy services to 50 mostly municipal members from across five states, and those members decide which of UAMPS projects they want to be involved with. The project has received funds from the US Department of Energy to help support the demonstration and deployment of SMR technology, and work on a combined license application has been underway for a couple of years now. Back in August this year, CFPP applied to the US Nuclear Regulatory Commission for a permit to begin early construction activities, and the company had said it expected to submit a combined construction and operation licence application to the NRC in January of next year. Newscale had even placed orders for some long lead materials for the plant with Korean firm Doosan Ability. But in early November, UAMPS and Newscale Power Corporation announced that they'd mutually agreed to terminate the project. The reason for this decision seems to have come down to a question of available funds from UAMPS members. Now, in Newscale's quarterly earnings call on the 8th of November, Newscale's CEO, John Hopkins, said CFPP had set itself a target to reach 80% subscription for the project by the end of this year. But despite significant efforts by both Newscale and CFPP, it had become clear that this wasn't going to be achieved and terminating the project would be the most prudent decision for both parties. So what now for Newscale's SMR? Well, the CFPP might have come to the end of the road, but Newscale's still bullish about the future. Just a few weeks before the Idaho project was terminated, Newscale announced plans by US company Standard Power for SMR facilities at sites in Ohio and Pennsylvania to provide nearly 2 gigawatts of power for its data centres. And it's also progressing with front-end engineering and design work for deployment at a former coal plant site in Romania, amongst other projects around the world. And the company has said that it's working to transfer those long lead materials it's already ordered for use to buy another customer. Even more recently, it's announced a collaboration with Oak Ridge National Laboratory on a techno-economic assessment to look at viability of using its SMR technology for process steam and heat for use in the chemical industry. And that's a notoriously hard segment to decarbonise. So we won't be seeing a new scale SMR in Idaho in 2029, but I'm pretty sure we've not reached the end of the story yet. The main thrust of this edition is now focusing on public perceptions and acceptance of nuclear energy. It was a topic examined by panellists at World Nuclear Symposium in September in London. One of those taking part was the Dutch architect, Erik van Egerat, who has been working on designs to make the Akuyu nuclear power plant, currently under construction in Turkey, look stunning. See the show notes for links to see for yourself images of how it might look. Here are some of his views from that session. Uh, we are very uh, much concerned, I think everybody as a citizen of this world, uh, how the energy transition is going to take place. Um, I'm in a lucky situation that my generation, who was more or less not so positive about the uh, nuclear 
prospects in the 1980s, my whole generation is now in favor. Everybody believes it's part of the new uh, energy uh, source that we, which we absolutely need. And I think for us uh, as professionals, it starts to become more and more important not just to be good, but to be good and integrated, to be good together, to be good not on one specific part, but to make sure that every aspect of nuclear energy is taken seriously. Mm -hmm. And that is something I will, yeah, happy to explain. The obvious question is about function and form. The industry, of course, is, as everybody understands, completely focused on technology. It is driven by technology, it's driven by know-how, and it's extremely important that the technology is right. There is no doubt about it. Mm. But it doesn't mean automatically that an average person in a country believes us. He will still think, well, oof, nuclear, ooh. Yeah. No, that's a simple, logical response from everybody, whether you're a little bit informed, partially informed, or not informed at all. So my logic is that in, in order for us to make sure that we start to get an acceptance of nuclear energy worldwide in a scale where everybody feels comfortable, we need to do better. We need to do much more, let's say, make sure that things look good. Not just because of the design, but because of trust, because of belief that what you are involved in is good for your country, good for your society, for, good for everybody. So we are working on a, on a project in, in Turkey, and it's very interesting because basically I came to the project when the project was finished. All engineering work was done. And my clients told me, Eric, look, we don't know, but it doesn't look good. Could you please look at it? So that's what we did. And we just cleaned it up, made it look better. Not, uh, uh, let's say, a group of 100 buildings, which are all a little bit different because all different engineering teams have a different opinion about colors, about materials, about design details. One was very obsessed with getting the pipes underground, other couldn't care less, etc., <laughs> etc. Et you all recognize this as it was. And I had, my only task was to clean things up. And this is the result. We are now working at peace. Um, so this is still designs, but they're all uh, under construction now, and we are building these 100 buildings in the next one and a half years and complete them. So you see, the materials which we use are clean. There is no feeling of mistakes. There is a feeling of consistency and precision, and that makes hopefully people believe that the that the project brings good. So here you see the first uh, build results. I mean, I have 100 buildings to do. This is the first one, which is just completed. So that gives you an idea that, okay, it is a damaged, quite a big piece of land, 200 hectares we are occupying there, mm -hmm. basically now empty. So I even told my clients, look, why, why we have no trees? Is there anything against trees and nuclear? Can is this plant not safe enough for trees? <laughs> so then why we don't have trees? So it's okay, Eric, let's, let's plant trees. So we have 200 hectares of trees to be planted. I've been now involved in this project for three years. I know it's difficult, but I don't see it to be impossible to change. Mm -hmm. I don't see anything uh, bad about me trying to make sure that this uh, Accio project looks the best wherever in the world. That's it. That's the only thing I'm trying to do. And I didn't change a single thing of the engineering systems. Mm -hmm. I don't 
change a pipe or duct or, uh, or anything, but it makes, still makes sure the whole thing looks like someone thought about how it looks. Mm, yeah. And most um, power plants, which I have seen, maybe I've missed a lot of them, look like they look how the engineer thought it would be good and can be done no other way. Mm -hmm. So why is that? Do you realize that every power plant is a huge, let's say, if you think about it, I did a lot of buildings in my life in many countries, and I've never been built something so big, 200 hectares. Mm -hmm. Which project in the world is allowed to be built just like this without actually not too much criticism? You can bulldoze away whole landscape, you can do whatever you want, because on, on the ground of safety and on the thing has to work, this is what we do. If I would do this for a simple commercial project, I would have to go through thousands of meetings, have to sit in into uh, sessions with local inhabitants, with everybody. Mm. Not happening here. And this industry is, in a way, treated with a lot of care. You, you are working in an industry where I know that you have a lot of problems, issues. We all have. But you're not the only one. A single guy who wants to build a nice hotel facility somewhere or a small, let's say, community of, of nice houses, he has to go through a lot. Don't cut my tree. Don't stay away there. Don't do this. Don't do that. That's the way life is. And I think this industry has to start to learn. If you want to be taken serious by the public, you have to take the public serious. Mm -hmm. That means that you cannot just do your technical stuff and say it's fine because now it's safe and it works. You have to make sure it looks good and it makes people feel good. Mm -hmm. And it sounds very, very vague and very, you are very nervous that I make everything <laughs> different. You're very nervous that I make, uh, make things too, not standardized. What do you mean? 200,000 square meters of facade I make. There's not a single building I've built in 40 years of my life which has this quantity of facade. He also had a broader message to the nuclear industry. I'm a little bit amazed that you all think that you are in such a difficult industry. <laughs> I mean, that's what I don't understand. I mean, the, the, the scale of which you work is huge. Look at the normal developments. I mean, I, I can't speak about it because I do a lot of developments worldwide. And an average project takes five, six years. So why is suddenly nuclear so dramatically complicated? And yeah, of course, but you, because you big, build big things. It's big money involved. It's a lot of interests which are at stake. So take it easy. That's not the problem. It's absolutely, of course, it's nice if you say, okay, I would like to have a nuclear plant tomorrow. Can you give me two and you bring me three? Of course, it, but it doesn't work this way if I want a new house. It doesn't work the way if I want a new city. Aesthetics <laughs> is, of course, important, but it is nonsensical to give it as a condition for a successful plant. That is absolutely not true. So don't, don't make these things a black and white discussion. You can continue to build whatever you want is the way you have done it. But I'm sure that as soon as there are a few examples which are super cool, very nicely integrated, green, people feel comfortable, there will be more people say, hey, give me one like this. It's as simple as that. So continue doing what you do, but be aware that things will slowly change. If you want to get public, let's say broader public, uh, say acceptance or, or um, uh, commitment, then you need to be nice, that's all. <laughs> and it's uh, what we all do. I mean, if we, we go to this, we, we dress up, we, we do our hair, and 
That's the only simple message. No more than this. Don't make it a big drama. Don't make it a condition for a new project. Maybe next time I, begin, I start with it, but I'm not sure if the result will be better. I don't know. It is noticeable that most of the small modular reactor developers have brought in designers to ensure the visualizations of their proposed plants look as beautiful as possible. But it seems like large nuclear power plants could also be getting a fresh look in the coming years. To continue with issues related to public perceptions of nuclear, I'm delighted now to be joined by David Hess, who spent 14 years at World Nuclear Association, most recently as ESG program lead. Hi, David, and before we get stuck into the main bulk of our chat today, can you give us a brief overview of your background? Hi, Alex. How are you? I started working at WNA back in uh, 2010. I'd uh, just finished a, a master's degree in environmental policy where I'd completed a project which was looking at the timescales for nuclear fusion. So this was essentially my, my entry pathway, if you will, into the nuclear industry. I started working at WNA originally in an information role, working alongside uh, Ian Hall Lacey. I gradually picked up a, a working group uh, which was looking at reactor performance, then shifted into a role, I've done many things here, but uh, which was focused on public communications and especially policy outreach. As a result of that, a few people here will recognize the, the Harmony program. And when that was launched at WNA, this was a natural fit for my interests at the time. So at that point, I was very much focused on what people thought of nuclear energy, why perhaps it wasn't accepted generally, and what the industry could be doing about that. I really saw it as probably the fundamental issue facing the industry. So I gradually shifted my career path into, into that uh, and seeing what we could do to address that. And then as I increasingly became aware of where the industry stood on that issue, I realized that we had a big problem with the acceptance in international and intergovernmental organizations. Uh, so shifted across to that. And, and that really was the Harmony program in a nutshell, reaching out to some of these uh, intergovernmental organizations and putting nuclear energy on their agenda. And I was part of the two-man team, which was focused on them. And you've also focused on ESG elements as well. With the EU taxonomy uh, saga uh, that occurred over several years, um, a few years back, a European Union task force was putting together the list of technologies which would be considered sustainable TM for the European Union. And of course, they left nuclear energy out. And uh, this one issue galvanized the nuclear industry unlike anything before it that I'd seen. And they eventually came together and provided the evidence and the input um, to help um, to get this overturned. And uh, I was mainly a passionate onlooker, <laughs> but it was my role to spread this message inside the association and to the association's members and point out to them this was actually a really big deal and could affect uh, their access to sustainable finance products in the future. Over the years, there have been some dramatic shifts in the conversation about nuclear. Yeah, you could say that. <laughs> I remember when I started, it felt a bit like I joined some kind of... Uh, uh, secret underground resistance movements. Um, you had to be careful about uh, who you mentioned it to and prepared to explain yourself pretty much at the drop of a hat. Especially coming from Australia, I really felt this. And Australia, is, as many people will know, is a, a country where nuclear energy uh, remains banned. So whenever I was talking about what I was doing back to my friends and family, I, I really felt the strong need to sort of uh, explain myself and I became a bit rambunctious about it. There were a few years after I joined WNA where 
pretty much every conversation I was looking for an opportunity to really start sort of finding people on this topic if they dare to sort of doubt what I was doing. The conversation has really changed that much where I feel that instead of needing to promote nuclear energy, in fact, I need to be talking to people and trying to get the conversation focused on practical pathways by which nuclear energy can be built, expanded, and the industry improved. It's clearly not the same everywhere, and there are communities where this hasn't taken place, but overwhelmingly this is my personal experience living in London and working in nuclear energy today, and I hope it's one that many other people experience also. And some of the issues themselves must have changed too. Absolutely. I'll tell you how I have seen the issues change, especially since the, the Fukushima Daiichi accident. I mean, clearly, at that moment, all the emphasis was again on nuclear safety. And uh, people were sort of um, justifiably concerned about the effects of nuclear accident and the potential of nuclear energy to have accidents. And so this featured strongly. And a lot of the NGOs, which of course are opposed to nuclear, were going on with uh, messages on safety and, and and this was out there of course there is there was then and still is to a certain amount even today a fixation on, on the nuclear waste issue and so these kind of dread risks of uh, nuclear safety and waste were quite often what you were contending with in public discussions uh, about nuclear energy well i'm glad to say that seems to have changed now and where we used to talk about uh, or where this used to be the argument against nuclear energy that you would chiefly encounter, that seems to have really shifted, at least in the circles that I'm in, to economics and to the time it takes to actually construct nuclear energy. And I, I do think this is a very positive shift. I mean, some people will say, oh, okay, we've changed one set of arguments for another. But this is a no longer a dread risk. It's economics and the time something takes are very, very ordinary issues which all of us deal with in our day-to-day -day life. I think there's an element of fairness in these criticisms and it's something which the industry can do something about. So I fundamentally see this as a much more productive set of issues which we tend to be engaging with on nuclear energy today than the ones which we were engaging um, on in the past. Of course, the other major change in the energy discourse uh, during that time I say change, but really it was even pretty big back then. But of course, is the, the climate narrative and how much the urgency for tackling climate change has grown over the years. You know, Greta Thunberg coming up and the, the Fridays for Our Future movement and uh, governments now increasingly signing up to net zero targets and, and zero emissions. And I know that some skeptics will sort of turn around and say, well, you know, climate change has been a policy priority now for like 30 years, but the prospects for nuclear energy have not really improved that much. So why are you mentioning climate change here? And I think what we've seen change in recent years is that governments are not just talking about action, but they're beginning to really implement it. And where before they were talking about just decarbonizing the economies, now they're talking about zero emissions and net zero. And the difference between just progressively decarbonizing and completely decarbonizing your energy system is huge. And so, again, we've seen this opportunity for nuclear energy created where practical pathways to get to zero emissions means that nuclear energy is again on the agenda as far as a lot of countries are concerned. And this issue, more than anything else, has helped in the sort of creation of a new advocacy and civil society movement in favor of nuclear energy and the reduction in opposition at the established NGOs, many of whom just do not really talk about nuclear energy anymore. And some of them are still technically against, but they don't really dedicate any funds or significant efforts to opposing it. 
in recent years, energy security must also have had quite an impact. Yeah, without question. I mean, I'm almost uh, providing this retrospective without looking at the last two and a half years of developments now. And with the on the back of an energy crisis, um, which we've pretty much all just been through, uh, the support for nuclear has clearly just shot up to in my case, never before seen levels. <laughs> Maybe others have seen these levels of support. And, uh, you know, it really feels like countries are making nuclear pledges or dropping opposition almost on a weekly basis. So, yes, without doubt, the energy security is, is top of the political agenda in, in a lot of countries. But I think it really is combining together now with a broad set of other policies, which is including climate change especially, which is now definitely creating renewed opportunities for the nuclear industry globally. And then I think the the final sort of issue change which I'd like to mention here is the advanced nuclear movement, which wasn't such a prevalent thing uh, when I started out in, in nuclear. It was something which really developed. A, this is an issue where my own personal viewpoint has changed over time. When I first heard of SMRs, I was immensely skeptical, right? I was like, why are we building small reactors when we could have large ones? How do you make the economies of scale work? But as I've learned more about them, I've, I've come to appreciate their potential, the differences, which mean that they can overcome these challenges and grow into expanding the envelope, the potential envelope of nuclear applications. And from a public acceptance viewpoint, which is, of course, one of my primary interests, I've come to appreciate advanced reactors and SMRs as being a gateway drug for a lot of people, right? I mean, they, I think they often come for the thorium uh, or the fast reactors uh, or the, the molten salt reactors, and they end up staying for the, the bog standard nuclear. And this really helps to sort of shift people's um, viewpoints. But it can also be a negative, and this is something we have to look out for. It becomes a negative when requirements for advanced nuclear are put into policy. So instead of having you know, a politician come out and say, I support nuclear energy, they come out and say they support, I only support advanced nuclear energy, when most of the time I don't think they really appreciate the difference. I'll just finish on this question by saying this is very much my Western perspective, and I think that the nuclear debate is very different depending upon where you are. And certainly in the developing world and emerging economies, I think the debate is always about access to reliable energy, first and foremost, and then about the economic opportunities and sustainable development opportunities which are attached to that. So the sustainable development agenda, as it's become more recognised, has become really one of the most important uh, issue frameworks for nuclear energy and under which it needs to be appreciated. You've got a decent following on Twitter, or X as it's now called, where you get involved in debates in nuclear on a daily basis. How do you think social media has changed things? For me, getting on Twitter was actually more of an outlet than anything else. <laughs> I felt like I had uh, some views to express and Twitter was the place to do that. So I, I really jumped on there quite orga organically. And I think I was fortunate to be permitted to do so. There are many organisations, especially at that time, which just would not have reacted well to having someone who was sort of public with their, their personality, getting onto social media and, and taking a view on, on many of these issues. Uh, we could talk about that a lot. I, I had to mature a lot as a professional to do that. And it was important to realize what you can say, what you can't say, and always to be open to correction and comment. I think that was a, a sort of key point there. During these past 13 years, we've seen the people and the organizations which are having the nuclear debate publicly change. Uh, 
I think I'd, I already mentioned how back when I started, I mean, it, uh, there seemed to be two camps, right? There was the anti-nuclear NGOs and the nuclear industry. And, and so when you were engaging in those debates or conversations, it was really a sort of debunking exercise. Um, that's changed a lot. But what did make a huge impact was the growth of a civil uh, pro-nuclear advocacy movement. This was done, uh, you know, at the, at the levels of um, individuals. So especially when George Monbiot come out and embrace nuclear energy um, shortly after the Fukushima accident, it's almost impossible to really describe how much this changed the conversation around nuclear energy. And, you know, this is this has continued to a, a large extent now. So uh, we have a whole bunch of modern advocates on, on Twitter and social media. The entire debate has shifted from being sort of a binary one to being like having a more complete spectrum. And I think you're always going to have the case where you've got like pros and antis, which are sort of yelling at each other. But increasingly, there's a middle of this debate. And that debate isn't like nuclear energy, yes or no, it's nuclear energy, what kind? How much of it? What countries? We are now having practical, increasingly having practical conversations about how to get nuclear built, what kind, the kind of processes we need. And this is just a, any way you look at it, I think is a, a huge improvement. Of course, with the timescales that it takes to get nuclear built, we're still waiting to see some of these shovels get put into the ground for new reactors. And obviously it's not the same everywhere. So there are countries where phase outs are still very much on the cards um, and we're struggling to get them overturned. But so I just, obviously I mentioned countries, but let's talk about communities. There are some communities where the nuclear energy debate is still pretty much stuck in the past, right? It's coming straight out of the 1980s. And for example, the, the finance community and the sustainable finance community, which I've been dedicating a lot of my time on, the reason I find this such an interesting group to be talking to is because you're really helping to dispel myths which were very easily dispelled really uh, back at the time. I think there's a lot of opportunity to convince this community um, that nuclear energy is something which they should be investing in. And I think this is something that the industry has to, to really appreciate. We, even though at the moment public acceptance is really improving, we can't rest on our laurels now. We need to get more targeted and we need to identify the areas where there are still these problems and these communities which we can effectively reach out to um, and do that. Social media has the ability to essentially give everybody a voice. And so things have evolved. We've had the entire influencer movement, which has taken off and more and more people are having their sort of thoughts shaped or led by these influencer figures, uh, which just wasn't so much of a thing really, I think about 10 years ago. But the, the key thing is to realize that not everybody is going to agree with you. Maybe the objective on being on social media isn't necessarily to have everybody to agree with you, but for them to come to trust you, to know that you're there and to be able to develop your own network. I think that if you are in the advocacy game, you have to appreciate that it's a marathon and not a sprint. And so people are not going to magically change their opinion overnight. It is something which is going to take years. You have to manage your own personal health and expectations when you're engaging in these conversations. And um, sometimes, you know, if you're the kind of person who, who can become slightly obsessed on these topics, actually what you need to do is turn your computer off, step outside, reconnect with friends. I'm guessing the same principles apply to real life conversations as well. Yes. But I would also say that these days I don't give advice to nuclear advocates so much. I seek to learn from them. And coming down 
again to the fact that the, the rise of this pro-nuclear civil advocacy movement has done more, I think, to change for the good the, the public nuclear debate. Watching these amazing communicators develop innovative new approaches, try new things, speak so eloquently about so many nuclear issues for me is actually personally inspiring. Integrity and trust is absolutely vital in nuclear communications, and it's always going to be. It means that we have to become evidence-based, not just in what we're saying, but how we're saying it and how we approach communication. It means understanding public acceptance and uh, you know psychology sort of at a fundamental level and becoming better communicators that way. And my final advice to industry communicators, you are the front line. And so, you know, how you appreciate what's going on with broader public acceptance and, and the issues which are in your communities are, are absolutely vital. And I think we need to empower more people in the industry to be more effective communicators. In fact, I don't even think this is an option anymore because of the, the rise of social media where and digital technology, right? I mean, somebody could simply be walking a dog, having a conversation about nuclear energy that could be captured, could go viral, right? The broader nuclear debate has fundamentally changed. Industry culture needs to adapt with it. And I think all of us in the nuclear industry are very well aware of, of safety culture and the vital importance of that. Your viewpoint changes slightly when you realize that safety culture is there to achieve a social license to operate and the necessary public acceptance which we need for the nuclear industry to, to flourish. But it's only one of many things which influence people's opinions, right? So. Not only do we need to have a, a safety culture, but we really also need to embrace a, a communications culture and an innovation culture, which really internalize what's needed to improve public acceptance fundamentally within the company. Really interesting stuff. Thanks for your time, David. And good luck in your new role as Senior Vice President of Strategy and Sustainability at Deep Geo. Thank you, Alex. Really appreciated it. That's about all that we have time for for this edition. You'll be able to find links to more information on the topics covered in the show notes, as well as links to the pictures of how Akuyu nuclear power plant could end up looking. There's also a link to sign up to our daily and weekly nuclear news roundup emails. And do feel free to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts, so you don't miss out on the next edition of the World Nuclear News, which will feature a special report on nuclear at COP28. 